0: Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning, Lord. And as we open your word, we just pray that you would, that you would speak to us. Each one of us comes to you this morning just in, in different places in life, Lord, with different needs. But we know that wherever our need is, Lord, that you're able to meet us. And we pray that you would do that this morning that each one of us would put ourselves in a position that we can receive from you, Lord. That we would put ourselves in a position of of humility and and be able to receive the things that you have for us. We pray that in your name, Jesus. Amen. Well, John chapter 17, we started it a while back. It's often referred to as, as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. And you may remember that Jesus is just about to be arrested at this point. He's just about to be led away. Judas, at this point in the narrative, he's already left to betray the Lord. He's already received his 30 pieces of silver. At this point, the disciples have already left the upper room. They already shared in that, in that Passover meal together. They already partook of that, of that communion. And, and receive the, the new covenant. And at this point, they're, they're headed towards that garden called Gethsemane. And on the way, Jesus is talking about the vine and the branches. You know, talking about abiding and all that. And, and here, at some point on the way, Jesus offers up this prayer to the Father. And as we saw, all of John chapter 17 really is, is one prayer that the Lord offers up. And we looked at verses 1 through 11 last time, a few weeks ago, before I was on my um, paternity leave. Um, We looked at John chapter 17, verses 1 through 11. So we're going to pick it up in verse 12. And Jesus says, While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, And not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. There's a lot in that one verse right there. He says, I have kept them in your name, which you have given me. I like how the NLT translates it. I have protected them by the power of the name you gave me. And I like the thought there, the idea, the power of the name that you have given me. Jesus says, during my ministry here on earth, you gave me this set of people. And I, and I kept them all safe. I guarded them. I, I was their good shepherd. I didn't lose any of the kids. And parents, you understand this, right? Some kids are wanderers. Some kids are runners. Some kids are right there on your hip all the time. But some of them, man, you turn your back for a second and they're gone. You turn around and they're off at the bolt candy section at Winco. You know, and and you go to the grocery store and it's like trying to herd cats. Right there, every direction. Can I have this? Can I have that? And, and, And Jesus understood that. And he says, look, you gave me this group of people. And I didn't lose any of them. And that was quite an accomplishment looking at the disciples and who they were. And it's interesting to note here that Jesus, as we read through this passage, he's sort of already speaking about his life on earth in in the past tense, isn't he? He says, I was with them. I guarded them. I kept them. None have been lost. It's almost as though the things... Are already done in his mind. That the that the, the crucifixion and all that, it's, it's already, he, his heart is so set on it that, that he's already said it's done. And he says, None were lost through the power of the name you gave me. And our translation here says, through the name that you gave me. What is the name that the Father gave the Son? We see in scripture a lot of names for Jesus, don't we? And I think each one of us, each one of them gives a little insight to us into, into who Jesus is, right? We see in the opening verses of, of Matthew and in um, Isaiah seven fourteen. it says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called Emmanuel. And remember what Matthew tells us? He clarifies, which translates, God with us. And so we see that aspect of Jesus, that, that divinity, the incarnation, right? We talk about Jesus Christ, Christ or, or the Messiah, the Mashiach. It means the anointed one. John chapter 1, it says that Jesus is, is the word. Jesus is the, is, the, is the logos of God. We see Jesus referred to as, as the lamb of God the one who takes away the sins of the world. We see him referred to as as Rabboni or Rabbi, the the teacher, the instructor. We see him referred to as as the beloved son. We see him called the only begotten of the Father. Oftentimes, John uses this title, the son of man. It's an Old Testament messianic title. We see him referred to as as the great high priest, that that mediator, the in-between, in-between the Father and humanity. We see him referred to as the King of Kings, the the ruler of all creation. We learn in Colossians that all things were created by him and for him. He's referred to as the Prince of Peace, as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, as the Savior, as the Redeemer. And, and, And which one of these Names was Jesus referring here to in John chapter 17? All of them, maybe. But I think specifically, he might have been referring to his own name, right? Yeshua. Yehoshua. It means Yahweh saves. The Lord saves. And that's certainly the most common way we refer to our Lord, right? As Jesus. The Lord saves. And he said, it's, it's by that name that I have kept them. It's through that name, through the fact that the Lord saves. And then he goes on and he says, I'm leaving. And I pray that that same power would watch over them. That same power that, that you gave me, they would use that power to keep them when I'm gone. And then he says, none were lost. And again, that reminds us that Jesus is able to save us. That he's able to keep us. And of course, he's he's speaking spiritually here, right? Not physically. And we know that life gets hard. Life was hard for the disciples, right? They're wandering around. They're poor. They're, They're outcasts. But they trusted in Jesus, and he was able to preserve their souls, right? They got off course, to be sure. They messed up. They did some stupid stuff, didn't they? Right, Peter rebuked Jesus. Remember what Jesus said, "Get ye behind thee, Satan." The disciples remember when they were one time out ministering and nothing happened, and and the disciples said, "Jesus, should we just call fire down from heaven and burn up the whole village?" John and his brother got their mommy to come ask Jesus if they could sit on his right hand and his left hand in heaven. See, they're always doubting. They're always lacking faith. They're fighting and arguing among themselves. I mean, these fellows, guys, they weren't on the honor roll, right? They weren't weren't the all-star team. But they belonged to Jesus, and he kept them. What does that say about us? And we're just like the disciples, aren't we? We mess up. We screw up. We do stupid stuff all the time. We fail the Lord constantly, but he's still there for us. He said, no one was lost except the one headed for destruction. The New Revised Standard Version, it's a mouthful, isn't it, for a translation, the New Revised Standard Version, it says that that not one of them was lost except the one destined to be lost so that the scripture might be fulfilled. And, and I like that idea there. It says, the one destined to be lost. And in some translations say, except the son of perdition. And perdition, that, anybody know what that word means, perdition? It's not a very common word that we use, is it? It means to be wasted. Some of our translation says, the one doomed to destruction. What are we talking about here? What's the idea with that word? Remember Matthew chapter 26 and John chapter 12, and actually all four of the Gospels. We see this this instance where where Mary comes and she breaks open that that jar of perfume, remember, and she she anoints the feet of Jesus. And and it's a very costly, expensive perfume. And in John's account, we see that Judas was, was very indignant. He was very upset at this thing. Because remember, he was the one who kept the money for the team. And remember, we know that he was kind of pilfering off the top a little bit. And he saw this waste, he realized that he was going to lose his cut. And in Matthew and Mark's account, he says, why why, this is so wasteful? And the word waste there is apalia. And it's interesting because that's the same word used here in verse 12. This word perdition or, or destruction or destined to be lost. It's that same word waste. Judas Iscariot, the one whom betrayed Jesus, his life was a waste, he says. Judas was destined from the beginning to betray Jesus. He was destined to have a life that was going to be wasted, doomed to destruction. And I want to be clear here, as Jesus is saying this. It's not saying that God made Judas do those things. It's not saying that God made Judas betray Jesus and then punished him for it. It's not as though the Lord said, I'm forcing you to reject me. And then I'm going to send you to hell for rejecting me. Right? And, and, and that's what some schools of theology teach. right? That we don't have a choice. I don't get to choose if I'm going to be a Christian or not. God chooses who's going to be a Christian. And then whoever doesn't become a Christian goes to hell. And, right, and taken it to its logical conclusion, that's double predestination. That God predestines some for heaven and he predestines some for hell. But that goes against the the teaching of Scripture, doesn't it? And that goes against everything else we see in Scripture. That that doesn't seem like the loving and kind and merciful Lord that we see revealed to us through the Word. And so what I believe is being said here is that God already knew what Judas was going to do. He already knew the kind of guy that Judas was. Right, and there had to be a Judas in the group to betray Jesus, so the ultimate plan could unfold. And so God picked a Judas to put in the group, so that this could happen. Right, He used Judas's nature, his his natural inclinations, to accomplish His ultimate divine purposes. In Romans chapter eight, verse twenty-eight, we all know the verse, right? God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. We we see this idea unfold throughout all of Scripture that God has this this divine, sovereign, providential plan that is far bigger, that is far grander than we can even begin to understand this side of eternity. I, I don't really think, in fact, I know that we don't really grasp the full depth of the Lord's sovereignty. I don't think we really get how completely He is in control of all things at all times. Every single detail. Right? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10 that not a, not a single sparrow falls to the ground. And the Father doesn't know about it. And we get this idea sometimes, and we might not ever say it, we might not articulate it, but we get this idea that God is really kind of like us. I mean, he's a, a bigger, more powerful, right, the, the best version of us. But he's really like this giant heavenly version of us. <clears throat> we sort of create God in our image. And that is so wrong. He is so far beyond us, that we can't even begin to grasp Him. We can't even really begin to understand His power and His nature and and just the the, the providential nature of His will. But the point here that Jesus is making is that He is able to keep us. He is able to keep our souls safe when we commit them to Him. And then we quoted Hebrews 7.25 a while ago, and I love it. It says that he is able to save to the uttermost. Man, I, I can't tell you guys how much I love that expression. He's able to save to the uttermost. What an encouragement that is, isn't it? I want to note the last six words there of the verse. That scripture might be fulfilled. Jesus notes this whole thing was all part of the divine plan from the beginning. And I don't want to delve too deeply into the prophetic aspect of what Jesus is saying this morning. We're going to touch on some of these things in the coming weeks concerning Christmas. But, But I just want to mention this, that the life and death of Jesus Christ were foretold centuries before it happened. The Psalms were written a full thousand years before the coming of Christ. The book of Isaiah, Daniel written some 700 years before Jesus came. These books, they they, they describe his, his crucifixion so accurately and clearly. And, and not only does like Psalm 22, for example, describe that Jesus is going to die by crucifixion, but it prophesies the invention of crucifixion because crucifixion hadn't even been invented at that point. Look what David says in Psalm twenty-two sixteen. 16. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them my clothing they cast lots look at that description there isn't that such a clear description of the crucifixion of our lord his hands and his feet were pierced it talks about his bones not being broken remember as jesus is there hanging on the cross <clears throat> the guards they came through to break his legs because what would happen is you were as you were crucified is your your body would begin to sag And as your body begins to sag, your your lungs can't fully contract and breathe. And so they would have to push up on those feet that were nailed to the cross and raise themselves up to get a a breath of air. And then they begin to sag down again. And if they wanted to to speed up that death, the guards would come by and they would break the legs of of the prisoner, of the person who's being executed, so they could no longer push themselves up to get a breath of air. And so the guards came along to do that because they wanted Jesus dead before Passover. They came by at their club and they're getting ready, but he was already dead. Again, fulfilling prophecy. We saw later on the the guards are gathered around the feet of Jesus. He's on the cross playing dice, casting lots for his clothes. All these things fulfilling prophecy concerning Jesus. Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend whom I trusted, whom ate my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Foretold how Jesus would be betrayed by his friend Judas after they ate bread together. And there's hundreds of these prophecies. You've probably heard Lee Strobel or somebody else talk about the statistical probability of this happening. And I I, I know you guys have heard this before, but... In case you haven't, I'm going to share it. (coughs) Somebody did some calculations and said the chances of just eight of these prophecies coming true randomly are 10 and 1, or 1 in 10 with 21 zeros behind it. 1 in 10 to the 21st power. And that's that's an incomprehensible number to us. And that's just eight of these hundreds of prophecies. And I've heard it described like this. And I'm sure you've heard this too, but I'm going to say it again just in case you haven't. Someone, someone did the math on 1 and 10 to the 21st power. And they said it's basically like this. You take the entire state of Texas, and you bury it three feet deep in silver dollars. And you paint one of the silver dollars red and randomly place it in the state of Texas. And if a person puts a blindfold on and jumps out of an airplane, right, and they land... And the very first silver dollar they pick up is the red one. Out of the whole state of Texas being buried three feet deep in silver dollars. The chances of that happening are 1 in 10 to the 21st power. That's the same chance of just 8 of these hundreds of prophecies coming true. It's amazing. That gives us faith in the scriptures, doesn't it? I mean... If God didn't write this, who did? Who who can predict the future besides our Lord? No other other religious texts have, have predictive prophecy. Well, let me clarify. No other religious texts have predictive prophecy that has verifiably come true. We can have confidence. And the rest of what Scripture teaches concerning the second coming, concerning salvation, concerning, concerning eternity, concerning judgment. Because he's been so faithful up to this point. And I heard someone say this, and I like it. Scripture is revelation from God, not speculation about God. Isn't that a great quote? Scripture is revelation from God, not speculation about God. Well, oh, we've covered one verse. We better we better scoot along. Verse 13. But now I am coming, and these are things I speak in the joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus says, Father, I'm, I'm coming home. I've told the guys a lot of stuff. I've taught them about who you are. I've taught them who they are in you. I've taught them about the kingdom of God. I've taught them about the abundant life. I've taught them about experiencing peace. I've taught them about not being filled with with worry and anxiousness and stress. He says, so that they would be filled with my joy. And we've talked about this idea before. The idea of, of joy versus happiness, right? And happiness is sort of dependent on circumstances, isn't it? I'm I'm happy. I got a new truck. I'm happy. I get to take my truck out on some logging roads and go shooting. My truck catches on fire or gets hit by a dump truck or a tree falls on it. All of a sudden, my happiness is gone. Right? You get a you get a new car, or a new phone, or new friends, or a new relationship, and we're happy for a while. You know, I I last year I got a I got an iPhone 10, and I was happy. Now there's a stupid iPhone 11. <sighs> we need something new. Happiness is dependent largely on our outward circumstances and joy is independent of our circumstances joy isn't based on what's going on around us it's based on on who we are in the lord on on what he has done for us what he's presently doing in us joy is based on the eternal hope that we have as believers Jesus says, I taught them about the kingdom. I taught them about you, Father. I taught them so that they could experience that joy, that peace that's that's not based on the external, that peace that's not based on the temporal, that peace that's not based on what's going on around them, that peace that's based on what's going on inside of us, that peace that surpasses all understanding, as Paul talks about. He says in verse 14, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I have given them your word. We talked about this a little bit last time, I think. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And in verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus is the Word. He's the Word that that became flesh, the Word of God in bodily form, the Word of God for all to see, living and powerful, like a sword, able to divide between soul and spirit. And there's some there's some connection between the written Word and Jesus, that I, I don't fully get it. I, I, I can't fully articulate it, but there's some mystery there that, that Jesus and the written word are, are, are connected, that they're linked together as one. And Jesus says, the world hates them. And he's talking about the disciples, and he's talking about us here. He's talking about followers of Jesus. The world, right, the world system, society, culture, it hates us because we're no longer part of that system. And we see this taking place all around us, don't we? We look at all the legislation going through with, with things like, like same-sex marriage and, and and all this stuff with gender. We see believers standing up for rights of the unborn. right? We stand up and we see something is wrong. We say, no, that that shouldn't be. And all of a sudden, the world turns on us. Politicians hate us. The media hates us. The church is so despised by our culture. You know why? It's because we belong to a different system. We're citizens of a new kingdom, aren't we? New believers begin to walk with the Lord, and all of a sudden, friends start to turn on them family members start to turn on them. They don't understand it. Right? Why couldn't you just become a drug addict? Why couldn't you just become a prostitute or a bank robber? You had to become a Christian? Listen, saints. You are not of this world anymore. You're no longer a part of this kingdom. You're a part of a new kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. Paul tells us in Colossians 1 that we've been transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son. We have a new citizenship in heaven. Paul also says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Jesus says I don't belong to this world and you belong to me. So you don't belong to this world anymore either. We're just passing through. And while you're here, you can expect to be disliked. You can expect to be rejected by Satan's system. Jesus says, it rejected me. Why would you expect it to love and respect you? Are servants greater than the master? Jesus says in John 13. And by the way, if you never have any issues with the world no, no rejection, you might need to ask yourself, you know, are you really walking with the Lord? Are you really a light shining in the darkness? If you can live in the midst of of depravity and darkness, and you can rub shoulders with sin, and they never have any issue with you, you need to ask yourself if you're really living the way you should be. Verse 15. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So Jesus here, he continues his prayer. He says, Lord, don't take them out of the world, but keep them safe while they're in it. You ever wonder why Jesus doesn't just snatch us away to heaven the instant we come to the Lord? Transport us home like Star Trek, a little little fade out? That'd be kind of nice, wouldn't it? Save us from the hard times, the suffering, the pain that life brings. Who led you to the Lord? What if they'd been transported away the instant they got saved? Who would have told you? Right, The Lord, he leaves us behind. He leaves us in the world to be witnesses, to be examples, to be lights shining in the darkness. Jesus didn't say, Lord, Father, take them out of the world. He says, keep them safe in the world. And it's interesting. Because on one hand, you look at that and you say, wow. Father kind of failed on that one. Literally tens, maybe hundreds of millions of Christians have died for their faith throughout history. Did the Father not answer Jesus' prayer? Or is Jesus and the Father's idea of safety different from ours? Jesus here, I believe, is speaking about our souls, our spirits, our, our spiritual lives, keeping that safe. Keeping our, our spirit safe in the midst of trials. Strengthening our spirits so that we don't give up, so that we can finish the race. Protecting us from the evil one. Protecting us from Satan. I remember when I was in Belize, I used to see soldiers all the time out deployed on the streets. There would be the police. They'd be kind of patrolling the neighborhoods. And they would have, it was called the BDF, the Belize Defense Force. And they would always have these, these BDF escorts with them. And they'd be out there, you know, and they'd have their kev on, and they'd have helmets, and they'd be having their their, their M16 or their M4 and their combat boots and their fatigues and, and all that stuff. And they're out there, they're, they're on patrol, and they have this equipment to protect them in this harsh environment because their lives were at risk. I had a friend who I used to work with, and he was in the 101st Airborne. And he told me they referred to that as the full battle rattle, right? When you've got all of your all of your stuff on. All that equipment that you need to engage the enemy. And the same is true for us spiritually church. The Lord has given us all the battle gear that we need to engage the enemy. Ephesians 6 talks about it, doesn't it? The full armor of God. It talks about the the sword of the spirit and the breastplate of righteousness and the helmet of truth and the shield of faith and and, and all these different things. This full battle rattle spiritually. These are all things that the Lord has given us to protect us from the evil one. And we could do a study easily on each one of those things. But the point is the Lord has given us this, this spiritual armor to protect us. To keep us safe from the spiritual attacks the enemy launches towards us. He says in verse 16, they are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Jesus says, Father, I don't belong here. This is not my home. And my people don't belong here either. And that's an encouragement to me that we're just passing through. We're on a journey. We're on a, on a pilgrimage. Heaven is our home. Heaven is our final destination. You know, and as I get older, man, I'm getting more and more grateful for that, right? I'm only 45, and I already feel my body starting to creak and ache in my knee and my hip and my elbow, right? And, and I recognize the, the beauty in this, that we're just passing through. And this armor is just to keep us safe until we get home. He says in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. The next three verses are really the the heart of the passage here. He says, make them holy by your truth. Sanctify them by your truth. That word holy, it means to be clean to be without spot or stain or blemish, to be set apart. Elias went to this school called um, Grace Primary School from Infant 1 to Standard 2. That's basically in the U.S. kindergarten to third grade. And and at this school, they had to wear uniforms. And, and, And their uniforms were this white shirt and tan pants. And I don't understand the wisdom of making five-year-old boys wear white shirts. Because every single boy, four minutes after getting to school, was filthy. They've got ketchup stains going down their shirt when they get home, and purple Kool-Aid on this side, and crayon, you know. And, and, and their uniforms were, they were defiled by the time they got home. Right? And, and the idea of holiness is the opposite of that. Clean, unstained, unblemished, pure, undefiled. And Jesus says, Father, make my people, make the church holy by your truth. And it's interesting that he says that, by your truth. What is truth? Pilate's going to ask that very soon in John. What is truth? We live in a funny time, don't we? So many scientific discoveries going on. The Earth is the center of the universe. No, it isn't. Global warming is happening. Oh, no, it's not. Oh, now it is again. Eggs are bad for you. Nope, now they're good for you again. Now you can only eat three a week. You need to cut out sugar. Here's this diet soft drink. Oh, sorry, saccharin's giving you cancer. Right? right? Truth is always changing, isn't it? What what we believe to be true is constantly in this, in this state of flux, and our morality is the same way. Morality and right and wrong in our culture and our society is always in this state of flux. What, what's, what's right for you might not be right for me, and what's wrong for you might be okay for me. But that's not what truth is, is it? Truth can be defined as that which agrees with reality. I think that's such a great definition, that which agrees with reality. God and his word is unchanging. It's eternal. His truth, his word agrees with reality. And the word of God, it doesn't shift and it doesn't change. The word of God doesn't change, but it's able to change us, isn't it? It's able to transform us. It's able to make us clean. Jesus says it's able to make us holy. Paul talks about the, the being cleansed by the washing of the water of the word. And I, I love that imagery there in Ephesians. He says in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, So I have sent them into the world. Jesus says, Father, I'm coming home. Training is over. Boot camp is completed. And I'm sending them out on an assignment. I'm sending them out into the world. I remember when um, when I used to frame houses, right? My first, I don't know, six months, all I did was pack lumber. I don't know how many thousands of studs and how many thousands of Of sheets of plywood I would lift up to the second floor all the time and I did that for a few years and as as I did that you know I I began to learn to read prints and I learned different aspects of the job I learned to to roll floor joists you know I learned to build walls I learned to to roll trusses all, all the little things and one day my boss said all right here you go here's a set of prints he gave me a couple of Guatemalan guys and said here's your new crew Go build a house. That was scary. I, 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 I knew all the parts. I'd done everything, but I'd never done it all by myself. But my boss said, All right, you're ready. Go do it. Here's a couple guys. Here's a pile of wood. Here's a pallet of nails. Go build something. And I remember this is kind of a funny thing. Remember, um, Remember that earthquake in about 2000? I was um, working on my third house at that point. So I'd been a lead for a couple of months. And I was at the very top of this extension ladder. And I was nailing plywood corners together. And I am a nail gun to pop, 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 pop. And all of a sudden, the house starts shaking. And my ladder starts shaking. And my first thought was, oh, no, the house I built is falling down. <laughs> I, did, I did something wrong. <laughs> But you know what? I was trained and equipped and commissioned. And the same thing here with the disciples. Right? They were trained for three years. They went through this boot camp, the seminary, right? They spent time with Jesus. And then he commissioned them. He gave them the great commission. Go ye therefore and make disciples of all nations. And he sends them out, sending them on on this great mission for the kingdom. And and something I want to point out here, guys, all of us, each and every one of us, at this moment, you're either in boot camp, receiving your training, or you've been given a mission, right? That's, That's a soldier's life, training, missions, training, missions. And we've been enlisted in the Lord's army. And our lives are either training or missions. Which one are you in? Are you in training right now? Or are you living on mission? Are you doing the things that the Lord has called you to do? It's in our faith. It isn't a Sunday morning thing. And it can't be. Because the Lord has called us. To so much more than that. This, our faith, it, it needs to be our life. Every aspect of our lives need to be devoted to the Lord. We need to always be on mission, always be serving the Lord, always seeking His will, always doing what it is that He wants us to do. Jesus closes with this profound statement. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. Remember the context here. Jesus is just about to go to the cross. The next morning, Jesus would be crucified. And this is on his mind. This is heavy on his heart. He knows the suffering that he's about to endure. He's knowing that he's going to be leaving the people that he loves. And I imagine that his heart was aching for what his people were going to go through as well. And he says, look, I am going to give my life as a a sacrifice for my people. I'm going to die for my people. Remember, this is the reason Jesus came. We talked about this before. Jesus didn't come to work miracles. Jesus didn't come to feed the poor. Jesus didn't even come to set a good example for us. Jesus came to die. That's why he came. He did those other things, but his primary purpose, for to, the reason why he came was to go to the cross and die. To become a sacrifice. To shed his blood for you and I. And we talked about about holiness, about how it means without spot, without blemish. God is holy. He's perfect. And that's his standard for us. Perfection. He won't accept sin. He won't accept defilement. And so Jesus, who was holy, who was perfect, who was without fault or blemish. He died in our place. He paid the penalty for our sins. He died so that we could be made right with God. And the Bible, it describes this process. It says that Jesus became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. Paul talks about that in 2 Corinthians 5:21. It says, for our sake. He made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Isn't that an amazing verse? He became sin in our place so that we could become the righteousness of God. And guys, that's the gospel message that we celebrate. That God became a man, and died a criminal's death. He became sin. He became the sin of every man, woman, and child. All of our sins were poured out on him. Your sins, my sins, our many sins were nailed to him on that cross. And Jesus became sin. He took our punishment so we could become righteous. perfect still, but we're credited with Jesus' righteousness. We're credited with his perfection. His righteousness was put into our account. Christ died so that we can live. That's the glorious message of the gospel in its most boiled down simplified version. Jesus died so that we can live. Do you believe that? He died so that we can live. His blood was shed to pay the penalty of our sins. And I know that almost everyone here is a believer. But if you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, don't let another moment pass. Receive this free gift of salvation. Call on the name of the Lord and be saved. Heavenly Father, We're so grateful for your word, Lord. We're so grateful for your incarnation that you became a man. We're so grateful that that you became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. And Lord, we ask that you just help us to walk in that truth, Lord. Help us to remember that we're no longer part of the world. Help us just to walk with you. Lord, have your have your perfect will in each one of us, we pray. We ask that in your name. Amen. As we continue in worship, guys, if anybody needs any prayer, I'll be available on the side. Let's all stand.